Okay, Bismillah Rahman Rahim. Okay, it's my pleasure to host this session um, in uh, you know the, a session where we're speaking with a distinguished guest within our series, Conversations in Islamic Ethics. So the guest who I have with me today is Professor um, Siras Ali Zargar, um, who is Al-Ghazali Distinguished Professor of Islamic Studies at the University of Central Florida. Um, so welcome, Cyrus. Very grateful for you to be with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Okay, so our aim today is to speak um, a little bit about um, one of your books, your most recent book, although it's been a few years, I think, since it was published. Mm -hmm. um, the book is, you know, The Polished Mirror, full title, Storytelling and the Pursuit of Virtue in Islamic Philosophy and Sufism. The book was published in 2017 by One World Press. And um, hopefully um, Cyrus is going to help us um, understand a little bit about the book and its place within um, Islamic ethical thinking more generally. So before, um, Cyrus, before we get into some of the details of the book, mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things which strikes us, of course, we can't deny that however we engage with Islam mm -hmm. is deeply ethical or deeply concerned with ethics, you know, whether it's at the level of belief, whether it's at the level of practice, um, you know, from a scholarly perspective or from, a, you know, um, you know, practicing individuals perspective. I think ethics, at least for me anyway, you know, mm -hmm. ethics is something which is very difficult to take out of consideration when it comes to Islam. And in terms of scholarly engagement with, with, with ethics in Islam or Islamic ethics, you know, we could take a variety of approaches. So some might choose to focus on a, you know, a scriptural engagement with questions regarding ethics. Mm -hmm. Others might try to focus on looking at ethical questions or ethical practice in terms of the jurisprudential traditions within Islam, fiqh, legal theory, or sort of fiqh, so on and so forth. Others might try and take a more theological lens, you know, with kalam and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. In your work, you know, as kind of the title says, you've engaged with philosophy and Sufism, or as I'm, you know, more specifically, I guess, it might be fair to say falsafah and tasawwuf. So can you say something a little bit about why you think falsafa and tasawwuf um, are important for understanding Islamic ethics or ethics in Islam? Sure, I'd be happy to. Let me address first uh, the really, I think, uh, astute point that you brought up right at the outset, which is that Islam is a, hev a heavily ethical tradition. In that regard, um, it's, you know, it's similar to uh, the other Western religions, you know, Christianity and Judaism. It also has some distinguishing sort of particularities that make it very, that, that make it interesting. And I think if you look at the course of Islamic intellectual history and you imagine um, each of the different facets and approaches to ethics that exist within what we could call Islam, if you can imagine them as a person sort of juggling, right? It's a lot to juggle. You have the legal tradition, the theological tradition, the Quranic tradition, hadith, you have the akhlaq writings, you have tasawwuf, which links to the akhlaq writings, but expands on it, maqamat and the ahwal and other discussions of all that. You have storytelling and wisdom literature. You have all of these, shall we say, uh, balls in the air, you know, these th things that you're juggling. And I think the the, the uh, danger for any particular scholar has traditionally been 
that there is too much, you know, there is so much that a person, I mean, just for the sake of becoming a specialist might focus on one. And if one branch seems to become more prominent than others, there is also that danger of uh, Islam seeming to be or being reduced to one of these things to the exclusion of the others, right? And this is what Abu Hamad Ghazali deals with, right? He's dealing with what he perceives to be in among the scholars, among the ulama, uh, an excessive pre, pre, uh, you know, fixation, preoccupation with fiqh and the externalities of the Islamic tradition. And he, he sees the remedy for that, you know, in the very things that I focused on in this book, which are, you know, on one hand, the akhlaq tradition within which the, which the philosophers were, you know, were interested in uh, perhaps more than others as a science, but also tasawwuf, which links to that. He's, and he sees that as a kind of remedy. But I, I don't I, I think you have to be careful to say that he he sees it as a replacement, which I think a lot of contemporary people would would do. Oh, here is the answer to our problems. Fiqh is not useful for me. This is useful for, let's say, Abu Hamid Ghazali, also for faith, Faith Kashani, who picks up. He sees, you know, what, five, uh, five centuries later, he sees his society in Safavid, Safavid Iran being very similar to that one. Similar. Uh, dilemma similar conclusion right he sees this as a, as a remedy but not that one should necessarily replace the other and so in that sense when you to now answer the second part of your question which is why so before we go to the second question yeah yeah sure just, just for the sake of our you know our audience yeah and when you mentioned abu Hamid al-ghazali i guess you're talking about the approach which kind of epitomizes right. you know revival of the islamic sciences right and um, so this giant sunni scholar and the faith Kashani has Mahjat al Baydha, which is kind of a summary of that. So, exactly. so you're saying that here you're seeing in these in these works kind of an approach which is bringing together that uh, akhlaq traditions of falsafa and tasawwuf as a remedy um, as a remedy to an overemphasis of fiqh. Or well, that's one one problem. Yeah, and it's not just an overemphasis of fiqh. I mean, for uh, Abu Hamid Ghazali, it's the way the fuqaha are even thinking about morality. The, the overemphasis for him, you see, the way Abu Hamid Ghazali looks at his society is actually very, uh, very mature intellectually because he, he sees, um, I mean, in much of the same way that Noam Chomsky describes it, the, that when you, uh, the intellectual class, sort of their ideas have a profound effect on those who listen to them. And so if you want to change the con conversation, you change the you change the conversation among the intellectuals, right? Uh, that's so he sees that and and he sees the shortcomings in thinking about uh, Islam from from this this lens of fiqh exclusively, right? And it, and uh, and the inability of fiqh to answer sort of very basic questions, the lack of concern with you know really uh, someone's hereafter, right? Um, it's not a shortcoming of the science. I mean, in fact, the science uh, the science ha has progressed and it has become a science because it could focus on certain things. But what I'm saying is that Islam itself has all of these different, just as you said, all of these different facets, ethical facets that if you focus on one and forget the others, 
uh, you sometimes need to be reminded about the others. And I mean, in that way, that's what made me interested in um, in ethics, what, which I'm calling virtue ethics, Islamic virtue ethics, from the perspective of philosophy uh, and tasawwuf, which is that uh, in in my case, uh, the scholars who had who seemed to be neglecting it, at least from the way I was discussing it, were uh, scholars of Islamic studies. Right? It's not that there were there was nothing out there, but that let's say the uh, you know in this jug in this great juggling act, this had been sort of set aside, uh, it, or or when it was discussed, if you read. Um, if you read a lot of the writings on Islamic virtue ethics, I mean, they were very limited. It, it was almost as if people's hands were tied and you could only talk about something as virtue ethics if the author used the word akhlaq or, you know, tahdib al-akhlaq or something like that in it. So it was like, okay, so let's talk about Miskaway, but the problem they were facing is, okay, Miskaway, he's not, uh, what do you, what will you really say? I mean, he's, He's he's it's a very syncretic approach to bringing in together uh, bringing together sort of philosophical writings, you know, Aristotelian things, other things that he's reading. He brings it together. It's not that original, you know. So what do you what's there to say about it? But once you start to look <clears throat> at virtue ethics more broadly as the perfection of human character in the Islamic sciences, in falsaf and tasawwuf, as a way of um, getting to a point where you can mirror divine qualities, it becomes actually a really fascinating branch of Islamic ethics and one that's really worthy of attention. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Okay. So thank you for that contextualization. All right? sure. So, so yeah. as, as you kind of pointed out, the book, or the, as we said, the full title of the book emphasizes that your focus is, as you've just led us to, you know, looking at virtue ethics, Okay, in these two traditions, okay, and overlapping traditions, as you so, you know, neatly and, you know, consistently point out. Mm -hmm. So do you want to say something a little bit um, to kind of um, ramp us back in about um, how you position virtue ethics, you know, as being more general than actually philosophical ethics or the, um, you know, the treatment, as you pointed out just now, you know, that is associated with the likes, with, the, with that Greek tradition. Um, which we saw, you know, kind of the conduit being Miskaway and others, but also how we can see, you know, the work of um, people in Tasawwuf as a form of virtue ethics. So what do you mean by virtue ethics? How is that applied to both the Akhlaq traditions and the traditions of Tasawwuf? So there's a way of looking at virtue ethics, strictly speaking, in the, the, um, the mold of Western philosophy, that it, it's very Aristotelian, it's very interested in defining certain virtues and thinking through them morally. Now, one problem that you face immediately when you begin to think about ethics in an Islamic context, as opposed to this context that's trying to answer questions, let's say about um, you know uh, medical issues, you know the well well being the well being of a patient or um, the the administration of a, of a of a city or something like that is that the Islamic context, as we've been saying, is a bit different. Um, Muslim thinkers uh, have the sharia, most of them, to, to, and, and in a sense that frees them from having to uh, think about virtue while also thinking about this kind of these normative issues of you know, how do we treat the patient? How do we administer a city? How do we, do, you know, do we eat ethically? Do we, it, it frees them to make this 
uh, to, to make the perfection of human character something that uh, you can focus on as, uh, as just that, right? So you, you, have your, you have your basic normative laws of society in the Sharia. Great. Let the fuqaha deal with that, or we can, even we can talk about that. But when it comes to the higher progression, you know, the higher progression of, of, uh, of doing things that aren't just required or even uh, recommended, but, but um, modeling yourself on some ideal, you know, human uh, model, you know, thinking about yourself as traversing to some goal, right? Uh, you're, you're free to think about ethics much more, uh, m much more as a, as a particular field of study. So let me, you know, that was kind of convoluted. convoluted. Let, me, let me specify what I'm saying here. So I, I mentioned that um, when it came to akhlaq, uh, there, there was an overemphasis on thinking about, strictly speaking, akhlaq writings, like the writings of Miskaway. Yahya bin Adi has a, a treatise on, on, uh, on ethics. And there are, there are a number of akhlaq texts. There's sections of the Ihya al-Medina of Ghazali that are on akhlaq. And there's, there's a lot of akhlaq texts. Nasir din Tusi, obviously, there's some very famous ones. Uh, but what do you do about the fact that many Sufi treatises, including Khaja Abdullah Ansari's treatise, Manazul Sa'irin, include akhlaq as one stage of the journey to human perfection? What do you do about that? There is a akhlaq. There, there, are, there are treatises, Sufi treatises, a number of them that will talk about akhlaq, but then they'll, they'll say, okay, moving beyond akhlaq, moving beyond the Tahdib al-akhlaq, the, the uh, cultivation of the, the fada'il, the, the virtuous character traits, moving beyond just that, these are the stages after that. What do you do? Do you say, well, that's separate, that's Sufism. This has nothing to do with that. Clearly it does. They're, they're borrowing from those texts. They're alluding to those texts. They're using the same vocabulary as those texts, but they're saying there's more to it. Okay. The fact of the matter is each of them is reading the other. What do you do about the fact that Ibn Sina, right, um, when he wants to talk about the Arif and he, want, and he wants to talk about uh, the ethical perfection, floods his writings, uh, his writing with, uh, with terminology from the, Sufi, from, from the Sufi sciences. Now, here's someone who, when he, taught, when he writes about akhlaq, generally does so from the akhlaq tradition. So what do you do about the fact that he also draws from the Sufi tradition? Clearly, what had developed were these, let's say, sciences of human perfection that were actually borrowing from one another, that were actually um, seen as, you know, uh, uh, parallel, having common goals, having sometimes common vocabulary, even if the end wasn't the same, even if the, the let's say, the personal philosophy of that thinker might have been different, that's fine. But they were, they had a, they had a, a common interest and were borrowing from each other and reading one another. So how do you describe that in English? Do you say, uh, you know, perfection of character? Do you say the spiritual arts? You know, well, no, because you can compare it to, you can compare it to the study of, of virtue, uh, to the study of virtue and virtue ethics and the Aristotelian tradition and the Western tradition. It has, has a lot of commonalities there. You can compare it. And that's what I do in the book. Yeah. 
Thank you. So, and, and, and uh, you know, again, at a very simple level, both are, at least from what I've understood, both are concerned with the agent. Yeah, both are both traditions are deeply concerned, you know, with um, you know an agent-focused approach to ethics. Mm -hmm. yeah? And I think you really nicely demonstrate how these are overlapping. Okay, engaging with each other, and I guess also pushing back against each other rather than just um, right. complementary. Yeah. So, thank you. Yeah. Brilliant. Right. So um, you've mentioned. So we've talked about falsifa. We've talked about um, tasawwuf. Yeah, how you set this frame, you know, overarching frame of virtue ethics, that these are two traditions which have, have coexisted, or as you, the earlier kind of image that you're given, these are two balls which are being juggled together, if you like. And, and obviously sometimes crisscross, right? Yeah. Ibn Tufail is, one, is someone who was both a Sufi and a philosopher, and then you have, I mean, a number of, I, I mentioned Ibn Sina's crossing over of, you know, but there's all kinds of interconnections and borrowings. What do you do with, uh, you know, uh, Sohrawardi? What do you do with, uh, um, you know, Ibn Arabi and the school of Ibn Arabi? Uh, there's all kinds of uh, crossovers between these two intellectual traditions when it, when it comes to a number of issues, not just ethics, but metaphysics too. Um, but yeah, in terms of ethics, there is that crossover. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, excellent. So. Um, so the crossover. So virtue ethics helps with kind of bringing together, allowing us to engage with these crossovers, you know, okay, and yeah. this complexity and diversity. All right. So I think I have, you know, unequivocally to me, that's one of the strengths of, of the work, you know, and a really uh, dynamic approach. But one of the other key things that then we, we're still on the title, you know, we're still on the title, right. Right. is the aspect of storytelling. Right. So what does storytelling do here? To help bring these traditions together at least in actually in your story okay and how is it useful to have used storytelling you know as a way into you know this um you know this these diverse ethical insights theories and practices of muslim thinkers across the akhlaq tradition and the traditions of the soul that's a great question um i'm currently teaching a class uh in religious studies and we've just gotten to what we, what's called the case method. And what the case method does is it takes students and it puts them in real scenarios of things that have happened in real life and asks them, well, what would you do, right? So let's say, for example, one of these cases is, um, this is Diana Eck, uh, her pluralism project. This is, uh, I'm answering your question. I just want to no, mention no, no. Okay, yeah. no, don't think, I'm not trying to. No, no, not no, trying no. to get out of it. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, what do you do if uh, there's a, uh, this is one of the cases that there was a, a Christmas tree display. This is a, a real thing that happened. There was, a, at a, I think at the Seattle airport, there was a Christmas, tr Christmas tree display. And, a, and uh, there was a rabbi who noticed that and he requested that a, um, a menorah be put up as well uh, for inclusivity. So what did the, uh, what did the airport do? They took down the Christmas tree. Ooh. Now the rabbi, uh, that's not what he wanted. He, he, was he, he wanted it to be inclusive, uh, but actually um, what they were doing as a kind of precaution is um, let's avoid the topic altogether. So we think about this and we talk about this. Now we can talk about theory all we want, but you notice uh, right away as a human being, when you're put into a context what you're forced to deal with is a plurality of perspectives, the complexity of human life, 
you're 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 forced to deal with um, uh, the the fact that really uh, it's not about one person being right or wrong, but about varying perspectives on on benefit and and help how a person, uh, you know, what a person wants out of the situation. It's true to life. And so when a person, let's say, takes theory and applies it there, or even learns theory from stories, it's very different. And that's why traditionally um, Muslim scholars have used storytelling when it came to ethics. And it's not just in Islam, it's in the world's traditions more broadly, right? Because Within the context of a story, things aren't simple, and that's what we—that's what we know about virtue ethics. Virtue ethics—it's not some like what you know Kantian like. Uh, this is the answer, right? This is what you always do. What you always do doesn't work in real life. In real life, you're dealing with all kinds of exceptions and and issues and problems, and and so putting that within putting a person within the framework of a story makes them. Uh, makes them think about those perspectives. Now, I was I, I, I try to do that throughout the book, but where I really try to do it is, in the, is when I can ex- consider a longer story, a longer narrative, which is the one from Rumi, which is in chapter 10. That's where I just, it's, that is an actual case study. It's a case study of thinking about virtue ethics in the context of the story of the Sufi and the judge, right? And what you begin to realize is, um, I, I won't bother you with the story unless you want me to, but what you begin to realize is that it's... Well, maybe it would be good to just give us, if you could give a brief account of the story. Happy to. For those listeners who haven't read the book yet, my hope is, is that we're going to entice people to read this book, you know? So this is from Rumi's Masnavi. Uh, I'll, make it, I'll make it quick. Uh, this is from Rumi's Masnavi. And the story is that there's a man who, um, who's very sick. Uh, the doctor comes to his house, as was, the, as was how it was done back then, and sees this patient. And he comes to the conclusion that this man's going to die. He's that sick. He's very weak and sick. So he feels for him and he doesn't, he, he doesn't want to tell him that he's going to die. So instead what he says, listen, you do whatever you want. Whatever makes you feel good, that's what cures you because he wants him to enjoy his last days on earth. Now, this man takes the prescription very literally and thinks that um, he needs to act on any impulse that comes to him. So he's walking along the waterfront and he sees a Sufi who's making wudu. And uh, he has this impulse to slap him. So he does. He slaps the Sufi. The Sufi is very upset, drags him to the judge, the Qadi. And uh, that's where, this is where, uh, this, this is the, the climax of the story. And the most important part is what will the judge decide? It's a clear cut case for the Sufi. The Sufi wants the full, you know, he, he wants the Kantian universal. He wants the law. He wants... This is my right, and this is what you have to do to him. You have to beat him, you know. But what you realize is that the judge looks at the situation of this man. This man is weak, sick, and very poor. And uh, he he, he really wants to forgive him, but because the Sufi insists, you know, he, he asks for just a little bit you know, a small, uh, a small uh, recompense thing to be paid to the Sufi. And then when the man, uh, the sick man sees that, that, that it's so cheap, he slaps the judge, right? Uh, so it's set up almost like a joke, 
And it's, it's a story. But when you, as you get into it, what you realize is that Rumi is able to look at each perspective of each individual and show you how, listen, it's not about right and wrong. It's about, this, it's about a particular situation that you're in. And what is the most noble action that you can take? What is the most noble perspective that you can have considering the perspective, you know, where, where you are? right? It's a, it's a lovely story. And it's a, it's a great case of the way this virtue ethics has worked traditionally in Islamic writings. Um, this is, you could call this a Sufi, you know, Rumi's Masnavi is a, is it a, is a Sufi literature? Sure. You, if you want to call it that, you can. But Rumi was, uh, as you know, I mean, he was an accomplished faqih himself. He was, uh, uh, he, he knew he knew his theology. He knew his Quran. All of these things come into the story as well. So that that's I, I think that's what I'm trying to to get at in the book with the with the narrativity and with the narrative is that uh, it's it's perhaps one of the finest examples of this shared tradition. And you'll see storytelling, by the way, practiced by philosophers, Sufis, and others. Um, it's it's another shared practice, right? Yeah, brilliant. So I think it really works for kind of um, this a number of levels so the continuity that it gives as a shared practice between the the, the philosophers and um you know those scholars of the soul that you you look at you know your point here about it um being a form of you know uh, uh, of helping us consider your yeah, ethical issues at the level of application They're rather than just a theory and i think that's a good pushback because sometimes people think that these discourses of a clerk and to solve, they deal with more theoretical ethics. And again, it's FIC, which deals with applied ethics. Right. But I think these stories, especially how you've just positioned it now, remind us actually, and this shows us the difficulties and the nuance involved when it comes with the application of theory. So the other thing I wanted to ask you actually on the storytelling and something which struck me, especially when I was reading some of the um, stories in the first half of the book, was, um, well, two points really. Yeah, um, first one being that actually sometimes people question, you know, why don't we have a, at least a, a rampant or a, um, or why don't we find, um, you know, a, an elaborate um, discourse or tradition of science fiction, you know, amongst Muslim scholars? Yeah. Right? And do you think this type of storytelling plays a similar role, you know? That is there to evoke questions, consideration, and um, you know, what do you think about it as a genre? You know, as opposed, does it play as some sort of role that you know, like we see contemporary science fiction helps people think about moral dilemmas? And, um, yeah, if, if the question is clear, it's completely clear because you know what? I, I actually thought about this question with the Ibn Tufail chapter. So mm -hmm. I would consider, I would consider the story of Hay Ibn Yaqdan to be science fiction. Okay, because if you think about it, right, what is the, the story of Hay Ibn Yaqdan, what he's really saying is that would it be possible for a lump of clay embedded in the earth at, in just the right, with just the right composition, at just the right temperature, with just the right light from, the, you know, the sun shining down upon it, would it be possible for a human being to be spontaneously generated. And this is something that the classics thought, you know, people thought about. And I mean, spontaneous generation is uh, something that uh, we, uh, we moved away from scientifically, but if we're talking about science fiction, we, we have to be talking about science then. And if that human being 
were spawned spontaneously on an island where there were no other human beings and no predators that, that uh, you know, that, that, gave, that somehow endangered human life. Uh, if that person were born on an island, would it be possible for that person to arrive at the most profound conclusions of revelation on their own using reason? That's a, that is, that is a, uh, a science fiction narrative, right? I don't think, and in fact, I can, we can almost say for sure that Ibn Tufail isn't saying that this happened historically, right? But it's the what if question, it's the thought experiment scenario that science fiction gives us that allows us to, to play with ideas, right? And the, the question here in this science fiction narrative is to what degree can reason, can, can just reasoning about the things around us, observing animals, plants, the heavens, and thinking deeply about them, to what extent can it give us what religion does, what revelation does? And his conclusion in the story, of course, is that a lot, right? It can pretty much give you everything. Uh, now, it, it's important, the caveat here is that most people are not a hey Ibn Yaqvan. He's a person of incredible uh, in intellectual gifts that he can, he can arrive at these conclusions. He's the manifestation of Ibn Sina's idea of hadz, of being able to intuitively arrive at, at, you know, at universals and, and these kinds of things, it's fine. But it, it is science fiction, you know? Um, and uh, there's also time travel narratives in, in pre-modern pre um, Arabic uh, literature. And, and so, uh, yeah. I don't know if that if that answers your question, but I think science fiction does play a absolutely. part. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the the, the follow-on from that is, you know, this um, this type of genre of storytelling, which plays a similar role to the science fiction, at least in kind of um, under understanding or thinking about, you know, where you know where can we be, what can we achieve, what are these ideals, and in the case of Hayab and Yakzan, how much can the you know how much can the individual through his unaided reason achieve potentially? Mm -hmm. But there's also from what I took from the, from, you know, from your analysis, there's also lots of social commentary going on in these stories. There is, yeah. Yeah, and you've just pointed to that because the reality is, is a society is multi-layered. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and if you like, you know, as some others have described these traditions of philosophy and Sufism mm -hmm. as, as deeply hierarchical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You want to say no, something you know, about that, the social commentary which is going on here? Well, well. We, and the tensions know, I, that might rise. I know we, we we probably want to talk about the book, but I'm so interested in the science fiction question. Okay, go ahead. Don't mind. I, I just want to, um, if it's okay with you. Um, so okay, so so there is a there is a connection between social uh, where a society is, how it sees itself in science fiction, right? And that is um, okay. You think about the '80s in the United States of America and the kind of hope that people had for science. Nowhere is it more apparent. I think that in um, Back to the Future 2, uh, something that I saw as a child, and the 1985, the, vi the vision of something in, let's say, I think would be the late 80s at this point, of what 2015 would look like, which looks nothing like what 2015 looked like. I mean, really, it was quite a disappointment if you were expecting flying cars and all that. But what does it tell you? Well, it tells you, this is how we see ourselves. This is how we define ourselves and our values. Right. And uh, we imagine ourselves in, you know, however, you know, in, in let's say 30 years, we imagine ourselves to be, uh, you know, to have flying cars, to be using fusion to power them, um, to, to really uh, progress like that. We believe in science 
and in ourselves that much. But if you look at science fiction made today, you'll see the tone has shift, shifted uh, such that um, a lot of science fiction, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, you know, I don't think if, for example, Star Trek were created today, it would have such a hopeful vision of the future. I mean, most of it's a lot of dystopian, you know, a lot of dystopian themes. People have kind of lost their hope. If you look at Islamic literature, uh, I think it's a beautiful window, especially pre-modern classical uh, Islamic literature. It's a beautiful window uh, into the way um, Muslims saw themselves. Um, and if you don't mind, uh, uh, am I going on too long? I just want to say- Oh, no, this is great, please. Uh, I once had the opportunity to see the uh, Christian theologian, Stanley Hauerwas, speak. Uh, and uh, he's someone whose work I've, I've admired. He's very, uh, very sharp and has, has a lot of intelligent things to say. But there was something that, I said, that he said that I, it struck me as uh, surprising. Uh, the issue of rights, human rights came up. He said, yeah, but you know, Islam, Islam, and I paraphrase, but he said, Islam doesn't really take an interest in, in human rights. And then the conversation moved on and I wasn't, I was just in the audience, so I didn't interrupt. But I started to think, could, could anything more, you know, polar opposite to reality ever have been uttered by someone than to say that Islam is not interested in human rights? Islam is almost obsessed from its first few centuries with rights and dues and judges and courts. It's a religion that's founded on a shahada, right? On a witnessing and a testimony. And above and beyond that, here's an example of showing the way Muslims uh, saw themselves. Uh, it's a story that comes up in this book, but I wasn't able to talk about it that much because it didn't fit the, you know, the scope. Khalila Wadimna. And if you know Khalila Wadimna, you know that the beautiful trajectory of how this, uh, this Sanskrit work uh, ends up in uh, ends up being translated, you know, middle per from Pahlavi Persian, Middle Persian to uh, by Ibn al-Muqaffa to Arabic. And it becomes this very celebrated text where all kinds of, uh, you know, people of letters are, are I mean, it's a beautiful, it's, it's beautiful Arabic uh, prose. But so it used to teach Arabic, yeah? Yeah, so you know, the, you know this, right? You know this text. And the structure fascinates people. The frame structure, it ends up becoming Atar uses it, Rumi uses it. And then, it, and then through the translations of, of Ibn Muqaffa's uh, version and other, I think there's another version of it too, but it, ends, uh, it finds its way th through Europe, the Decameron and then Chaucer, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales too. I mean, the impact it has on world literature. But what did Muslims in, in Ibn Muqaffa, what did he translate, this early uh, translator author, what did he add to this translation? Well, you know, uh, as you know, um, Dimna, his, his lies lead to the uh, death of the bull. And in the original story, that's it. The bull's killed, the lion kills the bull, and, and story. But what does he, he adds a court scene. You know, Dimna has to be tried. He has to be tried for his crime. So you see, early on, there's this interest in justice, but not just any kind of justice, the justice of the courts, you know, a, a, a method of administering justice right there. And you see it again in the story of the Qadi that I told you. It's not that those courts worked like, let's say, American or British courts, no. But, uh, and it worked for that society in that way, but you see the value of, of rights and dues and courts in the storytelling process if you, when you read the story, so. 
Yeah. So in a sense, this almost brings us full circle, you know, is uh, we, we started talking about, you know, falsafah and tasawwuf, mm-hmm. not in opposition to thick, but, you know, as balls, you know, being juggled together alongside, yeah. you know, yeah. diverse traditions. Yeah. As you've, as you, as you put it, have been kind of held together and alongside of each other. And these concerns being mutual, yeah. reinforcing, okay, and, and actually motivating and you know, stimulating some of the rich picture that you've, you've shared with us, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to kind of move to, you know, we've, we've got a few minutes left, sure. uh, but I'm going to move, move, move the conversation on a little bit, actually. Okay. And, um, I, and I think you've picked up a lot of the things which I wanted to kind of push you on and preempted, mm-hmm. you know? Okay. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I liked very much about the book, okay, is, and we've spoken about it already, is this bridging, okay, of disciplines and discourses. Right. Okay? So, um, you know, again, in some ways, you could position my own research interests as Islamic ethics, but it's working at the intersection between, if you like, theology and legal theory. Right. right? Yeah, but um, typically, you know, if you want to study Kalam, it's distinct mm-hmm. from Osul al-Fiqh. Right. Okay. Yeah, and, and, you know, we've got some major problems in the academic study of Islam, and arguably even in seminary training, you know, um, that disciplines are treated um, separately, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you do a great job here, and you've been talking about, you know, the importance of kind of bridging these boundaries in our um, intellectual endeavours, because the reality of um, scholarship in the past and the reality of life has been that the concerns of these scholars and of these questions are so intertwined, right? Mm-hmm. So um, you've talked about, you know, the bridging of Kalam and falsafah and also its relationship with some of the other Islamic disciplines. Mm-hmm. But something else that you do really beautifully in the text, you know, and, and we've done it in this conversation as well, actually, there is bring contemporary questions and contemporary discourses yeah, into conversation with your analysis of historical texts, right? And, and, and you set the book out in that way, talking about this current revival of virtue ethics. Um, so do you want to say something more about that, you know, about the importance and relevance of actually not reducing our study of, um, you know, falsafah and tasawwuf to an exercise in intellectual history? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It seems to me that you're not. You're not, your approach isn't one of an intellectual historian purely. Um, and that's something that I very much like. So, you know, it, it, hopefully this is a prompt for you to elaborate. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I think religious studies is an interdisciplinary field. And, um, well, let me just say, I'll, I'll answer briefly and then, you, you know, I'll, t- I'll, I'll, I'll give it back to you so, so we can, you can follow up because... Um, uh, let me know if this answers your, your question. Um, there, it's a difficult balance between being a specialist and being relevant to a larger public. That was as true in Molana Rumi's time and in you know, Abu Hamad Ghazali's time as it is today. Uh, the authors that we end up reading very often are those who are able uh, to, to speak to a larger audience. Now, part of that is they do that through storytelling. Right? When Abu Hamid Ghazali wants to do it, for example, in the Kimiyaya Sa'adat, he, he, he uses many, many more allegories and stories than he did in the Ihya because it's, a, it's more of a specialist audience. But even that is not a text just for specialists. But there are all kinds of texts that, we, that 
we that the average Islamic studies person might not be interested in or read because they were written with a specialist audience in mind. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with that in the humanities today either, right? With being a specialist, with being very focused, uh, there's value in that. I think there's different levels of scholarship, you know, uh, uh, and we all we all play different roles. Um, if I remember one of Edward Said's critiques was, uh, he said he, he was describing a, one of these uh, book, book fairs where he said, basically, you know, you have someone in, let's say, comparative literature who's writing a book that only six other people are going to read. You know? And that's true. He, he was advocating kind of public scholarship and, and it is important. The flip side to that is that when you start to uh, make it all about being interdisciplinary and, and publicly accessible, you lose uh, a, a lot of the benefits that being a specialist affords you, which is asking very difficult questions. I think the way you keep those two running side by side is either as a scholar having uh, both roles and maybe multiple outlets of publication, right? Uh, so you might publish your difficult things and, and your specialist things in articles and your more general things in books. That's, that's one, one thing that people, a lot of people tend to do. Um, or, or the academy itself ends up having people who are generalists and specialists. Uh, you know, both are both are very valuable. Um, and uh, I, I meant for this book uh, to be for everybody. Now, I hope it is. Um, it it wasn't the kind of book though that I I ever I, I would have ever had the confidence to write as my first book. Why? Because very often uh, uh, junior scholars who are just starting out they have to show that they, you know, as they say, have the goods. Right, that they can make the argument, that they can read the text, make the argument, know the theory, all of that. That's why you'll generally find you'll, you'll often find people who are more advanced in their years and in their scholarship are feel freer to to write in a way that others can understand because the questions about their, you know, abilities are, are they have to be less defensive. I guess yeah, less defensive, right? Yeah, less defensive. I would, so I don't know if that answers your question, but that that was what came to my mind. Yeah. No, I think that's a, so. Yeah, you, you, you've said it very nicely and kind of taken us towards towards relevance. Um, and so maybe we'll kind of move towards, you know, you're, you're wrapping up, just speaking a little bit more about re relevance. Sure. Because, you know, you, you make this point, you, your final section, I think, is titled relevance rather than conclusion, for example. Um, and, you know, as you said, that this book, you've written it for, for a wider audience and it really, really is accessible. Um, and I think you do more than what you've just described here, even just to introduce people to those who are just interested in falsafa and those who are just interested in tasawwuf, they would do well to have this, you know, on their on their reading list. But some of the comments that you make about um, the relevance at the end of the book, um, you know, I think are worth us picking up, especially when we were talking about science, you know, and of current science and historical science. Right. And of course, you make this really important um, comment that the akhlaq traditions or the, you know, this philosophical akhlaq and um, was of course, and it's, we haven't spoken about it here, but these, you know, this typical picture of the three um, different um, faculties of the soul, um, you know, being in, you know, being, you know, I, 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 with, with, the, with the rational soul seeking to bring in check, if you like, mm -hmm. you know, the appetitive soul and the mm -hmm. irascible soul or however mm -hmm. different scholars mm -hmm. have conceived of it. So this, um, you know, continuous struggle of, um, of of trying to bring balance within the different faculties of the human soul is being you know, one of the key concerns 
of the, the, the falsafah akhlaq traditions. But you make this really important point that this came out of a picture of, mm-hmm. um, you know, of, of the human sciences of the day, mm-hmm. and a particular vision of the humoral sciences and of, of what the body was composed of. Mm-hmm. So what does that say about us um, still relying upon these ideas today? You know, in um, whether they're Sunni ma- um, madrasas or they're Shia madrasas, you know, still this akhlaq tradition is still being taught. Mm-hmm. But those humoral sciences are gone by the wayside. And never mind being taught in the seminaries. I think this discourse actually mm-hmm. is informing public at large, actually, you know, through the wider ethical mm-hmm. teachings of Muslim scholars. So what do we do with that? And, and what do you think about that? Um, actually, that's a great question. That really is a great question. Um, and, and I think I have, if not a solution for everyone, a solution that's worked for the way I think about it, which is that, look, um, we love pre-modern texts. Uh, many people do. And many people, when they want to find answers, whether about the meaning of life or whatever, they dig into the past. They go into ancient or pre-modern texts. Why? Well, because I think part of it has to do with a realization that you know uh, there is something meaningless about uh, modern ways of living uh, that doesn't even try to give us the answers. So if it's not trying to give me the answers, if I'm going to be, be you know, then let me look into the past. So, but when you look into the past, you do face that problem, and it's the problem that you that you raised, which is that very often these authors are assuming a worldview that's based on science that we don't accept anymore, and it's part of that is the structure of the human body, uh, you know, the four humors, that's a big part of the akhlaq tradition in treating a person and diagnosing a person and their, uh, and the akhlaq tradition, the akhlaq tradition uses that quite a bit. Uh, but there's more to it than that. There's also astronomy, right? There's a view of the whole cosmos as, you know, these spheres within spheres within spheres uh, with the fixed stars at the end and and the earth at the center. And, you know, there's a there, if you really get into it, you'll see that that these thinkers will very often tie their theory to that astronomical model. Well, what do you do? Well, first of all, it's, what's important to remember is that very often uh, pre-modern thinkers wanted to have a theory that tied everything together. Mm-hmm. Now, today's, today, we, we have sort of accepted the fact that you might not have that sort of theory, at least not you know, until Star Trek time comes along. And these not for a while, right? We, we've accepted the fact that there won't be this comprehensive theory. The pre-modern thinkers, the thinkers from the, these, you know, um, you know, let's say 12th, 13th centuries that I'm dealing with, these, this time period that I'm dealing with, uh, they, really th- they, they really had this optimistic sense that, you know, astronomy, physiology, all of it can be explained uh, and ethics tied into that. But once you say, listen, I don't necessarily need everything to tie together that well right now. I don't need my astronomy and my ethics and my physiology to tie together like that right now. And then you begin to look at the akhlaq tradition divorced from the humoral ethics part of it, the humoral part of it. What you realize is that the basic structure of that ethics is that a human being is most drawn by two impulses three if you count the rational, but let's focus on the two that you have to worry about. One, associated with the heart, you know, associated with blood, let's forget that for a second, being anger, passion, right? Excessive activity. The other, 
associated with the liver, but let's forget that for a second. Uh, uh, desire, uh, consumption, passivity in terms of not being active. And that the way to deal with them is to balance these two together. Well, that does uh, psychologically describe um, what we very often face in life. And so there's a way of kind of reading that allegorically and, re and, and sort of uh, skipping the parts or not skipping, but at least, you know, setting aside the fact that the humoral part might not work. There are people who still practice, you know, that sort of medicine and that's fine. Uh, I don't know if it's right or wrong. I just know that it's not, hasn't been, you know, scientifically tested as right. Uh, but there is a way to look at that ethics in that useful way. But then just to remember that the book ends on the Sufi ethics and it's the Sufis who amazingly, by being much more interested in, in the Quran and Hadith tradition and with the sciences of the heart and less interested in that, in that, the medical part of the ethics, uh, really you'll be hard pressed to see almost anything they see as being irrelevant in the modern, in modern times. That's why I, I, I put the Sufi part second. I mean, really, I, I will say this as bluntly as possible. The Sufi uh, version of, of Islamic virtue ethics, if you want to call it that, is advanced. The second half of this book is more difficult than the first. And it, it, does, it isn't trying to be a theory of everything. It's really only trying to be a theory of the heart. And in that sense, it, it, it succeeds and is more successful. It, it succeeds and is more relevant. And uh, even Ibn Sina, as you know, when he wants to get it to the higher level, he borrows from that science, as I said before. So in that sense, I think, I think as a whole, the Islamic ethics is incredibly relevant, uh, but you just have to read it with the caveat of knowing th th this worldview from about, you know, a thousand years ago. Brilliant. Okay. So uh, yeah. typically, you know, we've, we've been talking throughout the, uh, we use this word at the end, actually, you know, which I think captures you know, what um, a lot of the scholars within the book that you've analyzed, you know, are, are trying to emphasize as a key kind of tool in our you know, ethical deliberations and practice. And that's the issue of balance. So not just the balance which these um, philosophers were trying to bring about within their own faculty, um, but also in terms of the balance of the way that you've navigated um, these different discourses. You know? So I, I really commend the book to everybody who's listening. Um, it has been a, um, yeah, it, it's been very, very useful for me. I've used it in my teaching this year and, and benefited it. Although you're saying it's not for, I mean, you know, you've written it for everybody. Um, you know, somebody who's been involved in Islamic scholarship for a number of years now, deeply interested in Islamic ethics. I learned many, many things. Okay. Thank you. Um, and, and, and that's very, very genuine. So um, it, it's just left for me to say thank you. Show the book again once more. Okay. To all those who are watching and listening. And I very, very much hope that people will take the time um, to read this excellent work. Um, and engage with, with, with Professor Zergar's ideas um, and hopefully benefit from his writing. Thank you again. You know? Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And the excellent questions too. Thank you. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Thank you.